a, ta uh, a taste of Sweden? No. Here, as in Sweden. Here, as in Sweden. That is our series title um, that we're bringing to you at the moment, Here, as in Sweden. And Ben started our message series last week with a fantastic word. And I you know, wanted to go one better than my husband, so I thought I would bring you a taste of Sweden. Um, I sent my mum to Ikea for cinnamon buns, and they'd sold out. And a couple of days later, Ben went back to Ikea for cinnamon buns, and they'd sold out again. But he did buy these, and they must be good, because they weren't open when I got here. And my children had crumbs around their mouths before they went to kids' church and were like making signs like this at me. So I think these must be good. Does anyone want to try a gingerbread cinnamon swirl? Yeah, do you want to pass them around? There you go. I'll throw one over that way. Pass them around. One for this size. Car, you can take the girl out of the netball. You can't take the netball out of the girl. So while you're enjoying your taste of Sweden, uh, let me tell you why we're doing this series. So a couple weekends ago, um, Ben and I and a couple of other guys from this church had the privilege of traveling to Stockholm um, for a conference. It was the G12 European Conference. Pastor Sazer was there speaking. Um, and we were both really impacted by... She's there. We were both really impacted by... Uh, the way that the church is over there and the messages that we heard um, whilst we were there during the conference. Uh, and um, Ben told you the other week that the Swedish country as a nation has um, really opened its borders to a lot of um, Syrian refugees, which is really impressive to see. It's not just Syrian refugees either. There's a lot of refugees um, and asylum seekers from um, Eritrea and Somalia and Afghanistan as well. And we saw all of those faces and nationalities represented um, in the church community because the church in Sodomam has made a massive effort to be a warm and welcoming place um, for all peoples and all nations. Um, and it was great to see them there. And kind of as we were approaching the conference... It dawned on me that of all the nationalities represented at this conference, Ben and I, as English people, were most likely to be unwelcome because being two English people, uh, not that long after the World Cup, in a Swedish church with Colombian key speakers could have been like really, really awkward. And I was kind of expecting that it would be like booed and hissed for our World Cup victories over both countries. But of course they didn't. They were absolutely lovely. Can I have my bag just in the corner over there? They were absolutely lovely, um, and they welcomed us with open arms. And in fact, when we arrived, that's the one. When we arrived, they gave us a little goodie bag. And, there you go, that's better, isn't it? In the goodie bag, there was this little postcard. You can see that there, it said, we are family. We are family. Um, and they gave everybody that came to their church this little postcard. And... Yeah, I was reflecting with Roxana after the conference about what had really impacted us most, and it was that sense that the Swedish church have worked so hard to create a sense of family um, in, in their community at church that reaches out and draws other people in as well. So that's kind of what I want to talk to you about this morning, building family, growing family, being family, um, and we're going to look at Nehemiah 4 together as a passage to inspire us um, as a church. And I should say at this point, you know, I feel like I've got the easy job this morning because I'm kind of preaching to the choir. As they say, you know, one of the great bits of feedback we get about people visiting our church is that this is a really friendly place to come to, there's a great family feel about it, you know, so I already know that as a church, you know, God's really put that in our hearts to be a family church, so I hope this message is something that I get, you know, lots of smiles and amens for, because um, I'm sure it's going to resonate with you all, because you're so good at this already, so let's look at Nehemiah together, Nehemiah chapter 4, 
um, verses 6 to 7, and then we'll jump down to 12 to 15. And I'm going to read it from the voice translation, because I'm still reading that in my devotional life at the moment, and it's really speaking to me. Verse 6 says, We return to building, focused and determined to work as one people. Now, if you don't know the Nehemiah story, he... Um, He's living at a time when the Israelite nation has been absolutely decimated. Um, they've been defeated by their enemies, and God's people have been scattered. They've been fragmented. Um, only a small handful of them still live in the original um, capital city of their nation. And the capital city itself has been um, ravaged by war. You know, the, the capital is, is broken down. The walls have come down. The buildings have come down. It's a really dark and desperate time for the Israelite people. Um, and Nehemiah, at that time, has been taken off in exile, and he's serving a, a another king, um, and he just gets this like God-given, strong desire to get the family back together again, and he can't let go of it, and he, he approaches this, the king that he's serving and says, could you support me going back to my homeland and trying to rebuild what was lost and trying to get something, a people group back together again, a nation back together again, a sense of pride back together again that's been absolutely um, ruined and devastated um, by the wars at that time. So in this passage, we pick it up, and he's just got back to the capital city. There's a handful of people there prepared to help him, um, and he's got them all focused um, and ready to rebuild the walls of the capital city. It says, we stacked rock upon rock until one end of the wall met the other, and it grew to half of its original height. When the news that the few remaining gaps in the wall were rapidly closing and our city was beginning to heal reached all the lands surrounding Jerusalem, Sambalat, Tobiah, some Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites all became furious. They said, we will sneak in amongst them. Before they know what is happening, they will be dead, and their work will end for sure. Verse 12, it says, next we were confronted by the Jews who lived near our enemies, and over and over again they warned us, you must turn back to us. So I strengthened our defenses. I placed men armed with anything they had on hand, the swords, spears, and bows they used to hunt, at the vulnerable low sections along the wall that were exposed, and I organized them by families. I stood up and addressed those gathered, nobles, officials, and anyone who was close at hand. And Nehemiah says, Do not be afraid of these people. Instead, remember the Eternal, our great and awesome Lord. Fight for your people. Fight for your sisters, your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Our enemies had intended to defeat us through surprise, but they learned that we were aware of their plan and ready for their attack. The true God had frustrated them, and so we went back to work on the wall at our assigned places. I'm going to pray for us now. Do you just want to uh, close your eyes as well and reach out to God? Father God, we come before you this morning, and we want to open our hearts, and we want to open our ears. We want to hear the word that you've got for us this morning. Thank you that you're speaking to us at this time. Thank you that your word is living and real for us this morning. Just pray that each one of us would hear what it is that you have to say to us today. Amen. Have you ever had to uh, swim against the tide? Have you heard that expression? It's when you decide to be the lone person that goes in completely the opposite direction to what everybody else is doing. Like, maybe everybody else has an opinion about who's going to win Bake Off, and you're like, no, no, my candidate's going to win, and you voice a different opinion. Or maybe you decide to do something that's completely at odds with what everyone else is doing. Maybe you decide to take a, a career change that doesn't make sense to other people. Or um, maybe you dare to have a, um, a radical idea that nobody else agrees with. You know, and it's like you are the only person trying to make your way upstream and the, the weight 
of opinion and um, history and tradition and other people's actions and culture is all going this way. And you're like struggling to make your way back upstream. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so this happens to me. Um, probably, I would say, uh, every year for the last sort of five or so years, around about the first or second or maybe third week of November, depending on how organized my family is being, because it gets close to Christmas and everyone starts thinking about Christmas presents. And I say to my whole family, Ben's family included, why don't we this year do Secret Santa amongst the adults? Okay, so all the adults, we will put our name in a hat and we'll all pick one, and then we all only have to buy one gift for one person. And you know, I think that this is economical because you're not spending so much time looking for things. You can spend time with your family at Christmas instead, you know, being family rather than shopping. I think it's environmentally friendly as well, I might add, because I think, you know, you're not buying so much stuff and contributing so much plastic to the environment. Um, I think it's um, efficient as well. I like efficiency, you know, and this way everybody gets one great present that they really want instead of lots of little things that they have to smile and nod at that, you know, they didn't, didn't really need or want anyway, you know? So I think I'm cutting a very strong um, path in the right direction. But it turns out that all of Ben's family and all of my family are the weight of water coming at me this way. Nobody wants to listen to me. They say things like, but it's nice to spend time thinking about the people that you love at Christmas. Whatever. Uh, it's, I love looking for thoughtful and meaningful gifts for you at Christmas and expressing my love. I'm like, oh, every single year. And to be honest, I was going to give up on it this year. Thank you. Ah, but now I found an ally. So I shall renew my defense because I feel all worked up about it again. It's environmental, Lily. Environmental. You know, that's what, that's what Nehemiah is doing at this time. You know, he's a lone figure cutting an isolated path in the opposite direction to all the weight of culture, of people's opinions, of... Um, of war, of time, of history, everything's gone this direction. You know, even the volume um, of what's been written about God's people in the Old Testament, you know, it's all going this way to a fragmented people who've been um, separated and spread away and uh, spread apart and they're away from each other. But Nehemiah says, no, you know, God's stirring something. A shoot will appear um, out of the root. You know, he's got something, a promise from God in his heart. And he's decided that no matter what, he is going to swim against the tide of popular opinion and make something different happen in a place where it seems impossible. And the way that he does this is through families. He does it through families. And I'm so excited and so inspired by that. And because that's what we're trying to do as a vision church as well. You know, we're trying to do something countercultural by bringing people together in small groups, in discipleship groups, treating one another like family and reaching out to other people and drawing them into our families as well and advancing the gospel in that way. So it's exciting to read that what Nehemiah was doing all those years ago is still so relevant to the kind of church and the kind of people that we want to be today. We want to be family, right? We are family. Yeah, can you say that to a few people around you? You can sing it if you want, Sister Sledge style. We are family. I've got all my sisters with me and brothers. So the first thing we see in this passage is that families work together. Families work together. Let's look at verse 6 together. So Nehemiah writes, and he tells us that we return to building, focused and determined to work as one people. 
we stacked rock upon rock until one end of the wall met the other and it grew to half of its original height. I mean, what amazing three words that we can take out of that passage straight away. They don't even need much explanation. You know, what does a good family look like? It's focused, it's determined, and it's working as one people. We get the sense of unity, we get the sense of one mind, one purpose. Nehemiah has gone and found um, a group of people that are prepared to come together in this powerful way. And, you know, if you keep reading Nehemiah, you find out that these people have lives still. You know, they have other things going on. They're farmers. They're traders. They've got their own families at home that they're looking after. But all of, all of their jobs and the other things that they're busy with, that all becomes secondary um, in importance to what they're achieving together as family. You know, that's all still there, but it's secondary to the call that Nehemiah has brought to them through God for them to do something amazing together. And then we can see that that's um, still something that we're striving to do now as city groups, as small groups, as discipleship groups, coming together as family, having one focus, and working together. And it works. You know, it's so effective to see that in Sweden. I've, um, I've been to Stockholm now four times, which is really cool. Um, the first time I went with my mum, um, 10 years ago, actually. Um, and since then, we've been back another three times as um, family and, and Ben and myself. Um, and we've seen the church grow from... I'm going to say like two or 300 people the first time that we went. And it's grown and grown and grown every year to the point that their auditorium that seats maybe 700 people or so wasn't big enough for them this year for the convention. And they had to go to a, um, a, like a conference facility. Um, and there were about 1,500 people there, 1,000 of which were you know, really strongly affiliated with the church in Stockholm. And they've done that through the vision, through small groups, through building in families, working together in families to to reach out to other people and draw them into the family of God. It works, and you know, those of you that have been to Bogota or Miami or any of the other vision churches around the world that we're privileged to have a relationship with can see the impact that families can have on the society um, around them. And what I think makes this even more interesting in the Swedish culture um, is a bit of research I came across. Have you heard of the Ease of Settling Index? The Ease of Settling Index. Sounds weird, right? It's a real thing. There's a bit of research conducted in 2016 um, and it was um, a series of interviews conducted with lots of expats, expatriates, who had left their home nation and had relocated to a different nation to work and to live there. Um, and hundreds of these guys, thousands of these guys were traced and asked lots of questions about how easy it had been for them to settle in their new nation. And uh, Sweden didn't fare very well. I'll put the research up on the screen for you um, and I can read it out to you. This is, this is the summary of the findings from Sweden. Expats have had a hard time feeling welcome in this country. They perceive the local population as unfriendly and distant, and they have trouble finding new friends, especially Swedish ones. Wow, that doesn't look like a ripe, fertile ground to grow family, does it? That's, that's a culture that exists in Sweden. You can do some reading about it. It's kind of called a culture of individualism, where people like to keep themselves to themselves. They're not very able to open up their lives for other people. They live quite... Um, individual lives and they're, they're not connected to one another in that way and you know that's the kind of culture that the church in Stockholm is up against if you like they're trying to swim against the tide of the culture around them too um, and yet in the face of all of that they have managed to grow through family um, in such an amazing um, and impressive way but uh, I kind of feel their pain a little bit because if you're the Swedish pastors you might have kind of read that research or looked at the climate around you, looked at the people around you, and you might have thought to yourself, well, I know the vision is about growing through family, but it's not going to work. It's just 
never going to work here. Or maybe you've been at work once sometime and you've had this amazing idea and you've sat down with your team and you've been like, oh, I've got this great idea. And you get halfway through it and you can already see people shaking their heads and somebody always says, no, I just don't think it's going to work. Or maybe your family has said that to you before. Or I, people, a lot of people say it to me, but normally after I persuaded them up a ladder to do something for me, like all the set design at church or putting a star on the roof or launching fireworks from a car park in the middle of the city or whatever else I've managed to persuade someone to do for me, at some point there's normally a moment where they turn around and look down at me and go, don't think it's going to work, Karis. I'm like, sure it will. Just turn it a little bit or... You know, it's not going to work. And the Swedish pastors could have said that about their culture and kind of decided that the vision wasn't going to work in um, their culture. And, you know, Nehemiah could have done the same thing. He could have looked at what was around him and been like, yeah, thanks for the dream, God, but it's not going to work, is it really? And in fact, if you flick back to chapter 1, we can put that up on the screen for you in verse 3. Um, this is what Nehemiah was told about Jerusalem before he got there. on one of the slides somewhere possibly. I'll read it to you. It says, the remnant who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Wow, there's a glowing report. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burnt. You know, Nehemiah had a dream in his heart, but what he was given to work with was a remnant of people and a whole heap of of rubble. Remnant's a bit of an old-fashioned word. It's a bit of a weird word. Um, if you've ever had kids, you know exactly what a remnant is. Say you've gone to um, Greg's, which I do more often than I should admit, um, and you've bought the kids, you know, I don't know, um, Belgian shortcake or a spiky Mikey or whatever it is they've chosen that day. And, uh, you know, I, I always think, well, I don't need a whole one. So I, I buy one for each kid and I say to, um, say to the kids, can you save me some? You know what a remnant is if you've ever done that to a child with a tasty baked good. A remnant is the tiniest crumb, the last little bit of pastry that they can possibly get away with as an excuse for saving you some. You know, actually, they're a bit different. My daughter's quite sweet. She'll give me anything. But my son, he's like, he eats it right down to the last little bit. And then he's like, saved you some. Oh, my God, I don't want that. That's a remnant. Actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, it says it's a, it's a part that is left after... Sorry, it's a part that is left after the greater part has been used, removed, or destroyed, or eaten. Um, a surviving trace. It's a tiny little bit of something. It's a scrap of the original. You know, it's a shadow of its former glory. That's what Nehemiah found, a remnant of the Israelite people, when he arrived to rebuild a city and a nationality. And he also found some rubble. You know, he found me, so he found there some, some old burnt rocks, things that had been broken down and torn down. They were a kind of a, a reminder, I suppose, of the disgrace that the Israelite people had gone through. You know, if I was Nehemiah, I would have been really tempted to get there, look around and be like, it's just not going to work. Not here, somewhere else maybe. You know, maybe if I had some more equipment or some more people or some better resources or some more time, but... It's a nice dream, God, but it's just, it's just not going to work here. And, you know, at the conference that we were just at in Sweden, uh, Pastor Seder, you know, specifically challenged us all. Pastor Seder from Bogota, who's kind of the founding father of the vision, he challenged us all to make sure we're not um, carrying around that mentality of it's not going to work here. It's never going to work here. You know, let's not get stuck in that idea that what God's done somewhere else, he can't do here. You know, with whatever you've got, God can do something amazing. You know, Nehemiah found fragments, but he called them family. Um, and he focused them together to work as one people. And he found rubble, but he dusted it off. And he reused the old rock that was there to rebuild the new wall. And I love that bit of the story. 
you know, it's a reminder, isn't it, of the dis what was a reminder of the disgrace constantly of the Israelite people became a declaration of their restoration in God. Something that was old and ruined became something that God used again. You know, God can use anyone and God can use anything. And that includes me, you know, and actually that's exactly how I feel every time I get asked to stand up here and share something with you because I look at my life and um, especially, you know, even now it's not brilliant. There's moments where I feel more rubble than wool. Um, but, you know, I look back at my life before Jesus was in it, and it was an absolute mess, you know, and it's so easy to feel like a disgrace, but you remember that God uses what you were, to, and he brings his salvation, and he draws you into his family, and he rebuilds you, and what used to be so disgraceful to you becomes reminded to you of the amazing salvation work uh, that God has done and the restoration work that God has done in your life. So never be ashamed of your rubble. Just lay it out before God and ask him to use it and rebuild it into something that will bring him glory instead. So I felt so you know, challenged by this passage, having just heard Pastor say that encouraged me not to have the it's never going to work here mindset, to think, yeah, you know what? I don't want to be that kind of person. You know, I don't want to be the kind of person that's gets to city group and, you know, at the end of it, I just think, oh, my city group's not working or, you know, the vision's not working in Newcastle because the thing that's got to work isn't the city group, it's, it's me, you know? A city group is made up of a family of people and the responsibilities on everyone within that family to come together as one, as one person or one group focused and determined as a family to work. The work comes from us, right? It comes from all of us in our small groups, in our discipleship groups, putting the work in together to achieve something and recognizing that with God's help, we can work. Yeah, we can do it. We're the workers and God can enable us to reach a city and to rebuild um, a nation around us. You know, that's why we're so big in this church um, on practicing Doing, doing that work. You know, we encourage one another to invite our friends to City Group, to invite our friends to events. We put loads of events on that we can invite people to church. Um, and um, we encourage one another to reach out, find out what the needs are of our friends and our family and our colleagues, to pray for them, um, to, to be people that reach out all the time with that family feel. And I think, you know, over the years, we've seen that some churches are really gifted and anointed um, at being family. You know, they've got the feels going on the minute you walk through the door, and it, it feels lovely, and they probably do have fresh cinnamon buns baking, and it feels like family, and everyone feels together, and it's very huggy and lovely. And other churches are really gifted at the strategy side of it, the mission side of it, the building, and the, they've got plans and calendars, and they're very organized, and, and they get things, the building gets done, you know, stuff gets built. Um, but we want to be a church that's both, right? Because both is best. It's absolutely best when we can do both together, when we can be family that are building together, when we can be family that work, just like Nehemiah called these people to do around him. So we are family, and we are working. You've already told each other we're family. Why don't you tell each other we are working? We're working it. We're working it. Oh, yes, we are. The second thing that I think we see in this passage is that families dream together. Family dreams together. That's such an important part of being a family that wants to grow and impact the world around it. So um, I'm really privileged to have a lot of my church um, family, also my biological family. Um, my parents are here this morning, my sister and brother-in-law are here, my brother's in ministry too over in Miami. Um, a lot of Ben's family um, are, um, in, actually all of your family are in churches as well, following God. So it's really great to see that God's um, using us all in, in, the way, in the places that he's got us. But, you know, we share a dream as a family, of course, to kind of grow the gospel and impact the nations around us. But recently we've shared like a slightly different kind of dream. Um, 
if you've been following the sagas of the Dohertys and Hardings, um, you'll, the Grahams have sat this one out wisely. Uh, <laughs> the Dohertys have decided to move back into the Harding home, um, and the Hardings are still there. So we, <laughs> we spent a three-month process um, in which um, my parents, Clive and Sally, who are the lead pastors here, uh, they were still living in the house, and we were getting it ready for us to move in with our kids, and there was a lot of building work going on. And instead of having like high-fluting dreams of you know, changing the world and um, you know, brilliant excellent dreams like that, the dreams shrunk a little bit to being shared family dreams of like, you know, hot water, um, just to have a shower or water at all to make a cup of tea, actually. There were quite a few days there was no water and then there was too much water. Um, so that was another dream that the leak would stop. Uh, and then, yeah, there's been a lot of like smaller dreams that we've been sharing recently just for like a safe, you know, water in the right place, showers when we need it, kettle working household um, together put family stream together. It's been an interesting three months. Praise the Lord. It's all sorted now. And in Nehemiah 4, we see a glimpse of like a family dream that Nehemiah is drawing out of people. In verse 7, it says this. When the news that the few remaining gaps in the wall were rapidly closing and our city was beginning to heal, reached all the lands surrounding Jerusalem. And the phrase that jumped out at me here was, and our city was beginning to heal. That, for me, is the key verse in that little, that key phrase in that verse there. There's a sense here that there's a shared dream that Nehemiah has gotten the rest of the team on board with, an idea of a, of a city that is going to be healed again. You know, it was a city that has suffered disgrace and um, di uh, just brokenheartedness, bro um, dashed hopes, really desperate situation that happened to the Israelite people. But here, Nehemiah has brought back a dream from God of healing, of a city that's restored, of a city that's repopulated, of a city that's productive, of a city that's returned to the Lord. A city where what had been before, all that disgrace and that shame and that difficulty and trouble that we saw in chapter one, you know, we we read that Nehemiah brings a dream that all of that's going to heal, all of that's going to change, all of that's going to be reversed and restored because of what God was doing amongst them. And uh, really, by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, um, Nehemiah was kind of, he was sending a message to the rest of the people of God that had fled the city and had scattered and been exiled. It was like a giant kind of come home banner of hope that something was happening, something was changing, and the nation could heal as well. They could heal their identity, they could heal um, their uh, all the kind of the pain and disgrace that they've been carrying. It wasn't just a physical healing of a city. It was an emotional and a spiritual healing of people's hearts that belonged to that city as well. And I think that's exactly how we would describe um, what our dream is for this city as well. Amen? Like when we want to see a society that is restored by God and families that are healed and people that uh, have restored lives, you know, where they're not suffering brokenness and pain and difficulty um, and challenge, but instead they're experiencing grace and love and forgiveness and freedom and healing. That's our dream for this city around us, for the city of Newcastle. And you'll find the same dream um, if you go anywhere else. I, I joke sometimes that I know I don't have an accent, but I have lived in Newcastle for 20 years now. Um, and I, sometimes, I think when I first met Ben, when we were first dating, I made it very clear to him that I would not be leaving the Northeast. And I told him that if you cut my arm off, I would bleed black and white. I wasn't going anywhere. This is my city. This is where I belong. I have passion for this city. And, you know, that's, that's our dream in this church. We have a passion for this city. You know, we've got bleeding heart for this city, and it will bleed black and white. We want this city to be healed by the blood of Jesus, and we want the people here to be changed and restored um, and experience the grace and the goodness that he's had for us as well. And you can go anywhere around the world to any vision church, and they'll say the same thing. They won't bleed black and white because they're not as special as us. Um, but... <laughs> 
you know, their heart will beat for Miami, for Bogota, for the places God's put them, for Stockholm. You know, they carry that burden for a healed city. And I, the other thing I love about Nehemiah's dream is that he's got this big dream, but he makes it so simple for people to achieve. It's not complicated. You know, he's not one of these executive shaper types like me that wants to make a pie chart and a Venn diagram and a flow chart and a calendar and a program. And, you know, Nehemiah knows that that's not going to get people's hearts going, is it? He just gives them a really simple way of doing it. And in verse 6, at the end of it, he says, We stacked rock upon rock until one end of the wall met the other, and it grew to half of its original height. Well, that's simple, isn't it? And that's what we're looking to do in this church. We are looking to stack rock upon rock. We are looking to impact person by person. We're looking to take the gospel to person by person by person and build them into the kingdom of God person by person by person by person by person by person. It's not complicated, but it is compassionate. And that's the same dream that we share today by reaching out through our small discipleship groups as families and drawing people into the family of God person by person by person. And uh, let me read you the, the, the Swedish statement. I suppose it's sort of a mission statement or a dream statement on their website um, about wanting to experience family um, in their church in Sodomam. They said, We are a family that you can just be a part of. A community of life, a home to come to, a bosom to be confident in, a place of security and love. With us, you will have friends, brothers and sisters, hugs and smiles, and a place where you will meet Jesus personally and where you can grow in your relationship with our Father God. You need never be alone again. We are family. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we're looking to take that message to, rock by rock, person by person. I was so impacted, you know, as I was preparing this message with the idea that every time you meet in your city group, you know, our city heals a little bit more. Isn't that amazing? Every time you guys get together in family, our city heals a little tiny bit more. And that's what we're about, and that's what we're doing. And that's why we're here. It's about people. And then the last thing, really, is that family sticks together. That's the last thing I think we see in this passage, um, that enables Nehemiah to get these people around him to work together to do something so incredible for God. So my kids absolutely love animals, Leo in particular. Um, my gra- grandpa was a big fan of bird watching, and he had these amazing giant old-fashioned leather binoculars, and he bequeathed them to Leo a few years ago, and he's taken this very, very seriously. So we still have Grandpa John's birdhouse, and um, something in Leo is just connected with that gift, and, and he sits out in the little porch bay with these giant binoculars. Um, they're bigger than his face, bless him. And he, and he eagerly looks for birds, and uh, you know, we were making bird feeders in the garden the other day, and he's delighted because they've started to um, land, and he can kind of examine them a little bit closer. So over the summer holidays, I wanted to kind of, you know, sow to that passion in him. I think it's great when kids are interested in nature. What a wonderful thing that points them back to God. I can't, I can't get enough of it. So I wanted to invest in that over the summer holidays. And I took Leo and Stella on a little mini overnight stay down to York. Um, and we went to the National Center for Birds of Prey, I think it was called. And they these huge, they loved it. Spent a lot, a lot of time there and um, watching these ginormous birds, absolutely gorgeous, graceful, and also terrifying creatures. And they did flying displays and all sorts of things. And uh, Leah's obviously most interested in the predatory birds. Uh, so, you know, he wants to know how quickly birds can kill other birds, that kind of thing, um, as, as well as enjoying the garden birds and stuff. So, I've learned a lot about birds in my time, and I've learned about hawks and peregrine falcons. And I happen to know that um, these are predatory birds that go after littler birds, like uh, starlings. So I've got a picture up on the screen for you here of a hawk and a starling, or maybe I haven't. 
Um, and let me tell you about it. The Hawk is about uh, something between about 50 centimeters big. Um, yeah, not quite, Andy. You'll be there in a second. There's, no, you're doing so well. Thank you for stepping in. I'm really grateful. Um, so the Hawk is about um, 50 centimeters big, so kind of about this big. And the Starling is about half the size, around about 20, 21, 22 centimeters big. So the Starling's quite... In fact, what I probably need is some volunteers to help me here. Who is um, feeling like a Starling? Antonia. <laughs> okay, you can be my Starling. Right, I'm going to make you as Starling-like as I can here. You do. You're going to be the coolest. All the other Starlings are going to be so jealous of you. You're like a Captain America. So you've got a target on your back, though, I have to warn you. This might become apparent later. I need a hawk. Who's feeling uh, hawkish? Come on, come on, Christian. You can come be our mean old hawk. You can be the hawk. <laughs> this is brilliant. Thanks for having bought these. Absolutely perfect. So we've got you with your target on your back. You've got to go over there and be like all small and vulnerable. Yes, you do need that one, definitely. It's a <laughs> crucial. It's method acting. So I'm just helping you get into the zone. So if you could just crouch down over here, that's right. Little starling, and yes, boo, the big hawk over here. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the way that the hawk hunts the starling is to wait till the starling has hopped away from its little group of friends and family, and maybe gone over that way by itself, and just wait that way. Yes, peck, peck, peck. He's just wandered away from the pack, this little starling, and she's, uh, she's just found some nice little berries or something to eat over there, and the hawk spots an opportunity. The starling is by itself, and when the bird is solitary, the, don't actually do it, the hawk <laughs> strikes. And he comes down, he swoops down, he picks up the starling and then smashes it back into the ground to kill it, but don't actually do that. <laughs> yeah, you can stand, you're not hungry, how alarming. You can go back over that side for me, okay? So this is, what, this is how a hawk picks off a starling. And that's what was going on for Nehemiah here. Because, you know, they were a very small group of people, you know, and they were up against a much bigger, more powerful enemy, okay? And they were vulnerable in the city of Jerusalem. Um, and they were kind of alone from the rest of the people that might have supported them once upon a time. And they've got all these people surrounding them, other Jewish people that think that what they're doing is heretical and wrong, um, other people that have taken power in the area and don't want to relinquish it. And they are out to strike. And Nehemiah says, let me flick this through, thank you very much. You know, Nehemiah tells us that um, they were, um, yeah, that they're very vulnerable, I think is the word that he uses to describe their position when the, when the enemy decided to attack them. But the problem is, and I don't know if you find this is true in your life as well, but I find that the enemy has got the same strategy at work in my own life now. And I find so often that when I'm feeling a little bit um, low or vulnerable, my inclination is to kind of withdraw from the people that might protect me. So just like this sort of starling kind of hops away a little bit by itself to investigate what's going on over there. You know, we can so often in our own lives, when pressure comes on us, the temptation can be to withdraw from the people that could actually help us. And you know, I'm here to say this morning, the great thing about being part of God's family and being a child of God is that you never have to be alone again. You never have to be vulnerable again. The Holy Spirit is there to help you. Your city group is there to offer you help, both, as I find in my life, practical um, and, you know, all the hugs. There's lots of hugs in my city group, and there's plenty of people that can make IKEA furniture with me as well. You know, it's all there when I need it, you know. But it's us sometimes that withdraws ourselves from that opportunity to receive help and receive support. And I understand why we do that. You know, it's, sometimes we're, 
what we think we're doing is safeguarding ourselves from emotional distress. Have you got any friends in your life that you know every time you ask them what's going on, they just go, I'm fine. Yeah. What, what have you been up to this week? I've just been good week. Yeah, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You think, oh, no, that's a defensive mechanism, really, from telling you exactly what's going on in your life and really being vulnerable with people. Because I understand, I do it too. I don't want to tell you how I'm really doing because it's quite painful and quite difficult. And I'm wearing mascara today and I don't actually want to cry. You know, that's all going on behind. Yeah, I'm fine. Um, and every time we do that, you know, I'm fine. And every time someone in our church family reaches out to us, you know, actually we can kind of pull away from them, pull away from them till we're further and further away from the people that can stand around us um, and support us. And it's so interesting to see the different language that is used about the very same wall in uh, the Nehemiah story. So when we start in at the beginning of um, chapter 4, the bit I read you, you know, Nehemiah describes the wall in a really excited way. You know, he says, it's going great. We stacked rock upon rock upon rock. The wall's nearly at half its original height. It's nearly closing. We've nearly reached the other end of the wall. And here we are just a few chapters later. And now the same, very same wall is being described as low and vulnerable and exposed. And that's because when pressure comes on us in life, we can really rapidly lose perspective. We can be faced with the exact same set of circumstances, but when there's a threat of an attack, when we feel like the enemy's out to get us, all of a sudden, our perspective can completely twist, and the same bit of wall, which we were so excited about, the progress we've made, we're so excited about what God was doing in us, becomes something low and vulnerable and exposed. I think there's a great word to describe us emotionally, actually. I think when we're under pressure in life, those are three words that I can often find myself feeling emotionally as well, you know, low and vulnerable and exposed, and that's when we need our church family around us the most to say, hey, no, this isn't a low, vulnerable, exposed wall. You know, it's okay. We're all together. Actually, this wall's, you know, nearly half the height that it used to be. Um, it's closing. The, the gaps are closing. We've been stacking the rocks really well. Hang in there. It's all going to be okay. You know, my mom says to me that, and she said it to you probably as well, if you've probably all had the Sally Pep talk, it's the times when you least want to go to church that you must be there. You know, it's those times when you wake up in the morning and you're like, I just can't face it. I don't want to have little pep talks from, hang on a sec. Apparently I have small ears. Which is better than the alternative, I guess. You know, we don't want to go to church because we don't want people to give us an alternative perspective because it's often quite comforting, isn't it, to kind of stand there and feel a bit low and exposed. And it's not really happening for me, is it? Come on, Andy, sort me out. I feel like we need, like, personalized ear hooks. I've just been told that, nope, they're not small, they're just odd. <laughs> Sorted? Great, thank you. <laughs> when we don't want to be at church, that's when we should be at church, right? When we're most feeling like we don't want to be told a better perspective, that's when we really need to get it. And we need to be reminded by our family, reminded by our friends that God's still in this, God's still empowering us, and it's all going to be okay. We need to hear the better word, we need to hear the biblical perspective, and we just need to get to church and, and get it down. Um, so, you know, let's go back to our starlings and our hawks here, okay? What does a starling do when it's vulnerable to attack from a hawk? Shall I say what they do? They do something, this is going to be a new word for most of you. They form a murmuration. Anybody know what a murmuration is? 
a murmuration of starlings. Okay, so Andy's going to put this video on in the background, and Antonia is going to need a lot of friends here to help her with this murmuration situation. Come, friends! She's going to need at least 20 of you. And if you watch this video, you'll see what starlings do to protect themselves from birds of prey in the evening. They form... Oh, lovely. Thanks, Grammarly. They form a giant swarm. You'll see them in a minute. It's like a swarm... I don't think that's the right one. It's them, it was the one before with them um, over Rome. And there's a peregrine falcon about to attack them. And it's all very exciting. And the peregrine falcon comes closer and closer to them. And what the birds do is they choose seven birds around them. Can you choose seven birds? One, two. They get in groups of seven, basically, in this giant, giant flock of birds. Seven of them. <laughs> sorry, you're out. Seven of them all fly in the exact same pattern. And apparently they have reflexes that are 100 times faster than your average fighter pilot. These are starling birds. Their reflexes are 100 times faster. And they stick together in this giant swarm, and they never hit each other. And the entire time that scientists have been watching this, they've never seen bird accidents happening. And they get together in these huge, huge clouds. Um, they follow the seven birds that are closest to them. Um, and what they do is they terrify off birds of prey. And the, you know, the hawk can come along, but he he basically is so confused by the mesmerizing pattern that he can't lock on to a single bird. That's it. You can try and fly through them, but you're going to get very confused because they're all freaking you out. Hey, that's it. And he's off. And they scare him off. That's how it works. Thank you very much, guys. See, that scared little bird. He can't, you know, he's, the enemy's so confused by the togetherness of the pack. He can't get a hold of any single starling. And even with that many opportunities around him for a feast, they just can't get hold of it. And eventually, it's so terrifying for them that they just kind of give up and fly away. Honestly, this afternoon, over lunch, look up murmurations on YouTube. There's like hundreds of them. They're absolutely mesmerizing. I've never seen anything like it. But you know, Nehemiah had the same idea, didn't he? Like when he came under attack, when he came under pressure, he had the exact same idea. It's like get yourselves together in a group. Stick together. And he called um, the people back together, away from where they were working, and got them back together into families. Now, I think that's really interesting. You know, have you heard the expression, you know, we're stronger together, or the strength of the wolf is in the pack? I think that's from the Jungle Book. Uh, but there's this idea that together we're stronger, together we're better. It makes sense to get people together in groups, doesn't it, to fight an enemy. They can, like, yeah, they can kind of buoy each other up. So why does he organize them by families? Why, what's the significance in them being not just groups of people? You know, I could put you guys in a group of seven, you guys in a group of seven, you guys in a group of seven. Why does he do it in families? You know, he's like, right, Bowie's over there, Cardoso's over there. Why does he do it in families? And I think there's more to it than just administration, right? It might be easy just to go down the register and be like, A's over there, B's over there, C's over there. I think there's more to it than just Nehemiah being an excellent organizer. Um, I think he understands something. Because this is what he says um, in the next verses. Do not be afraid of these people. Instead, remember the eternal, our great and awesome Lord. Fight for your people, your sisters and your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah understands that we fight for the ones we love, don't we? You know, even when we feel like we've absolutely run out of road, when we feel exhausted and tired and fed up, we'll still find something in us to keep going at the thought of the people that we love and those around us. We draw so much strength, don't we, from the ones that we love being around us. 
you know, when things are hard and when the pressure comes. It's the people we love that know us best that can say the right things sometimes. And it's the thought of the people we love having belief in us that can motivate us to keep going and fighting back and keep going, keep building, keep being part of what God's called you to be part of, just like Jesus did with his disciples. You know, he poured out such love on those guys. You know, he really gave his life to them and he, he lived alongside them and he loved them. And that's what we're looking to do in our discipleship groups as well, is to find ways of connecting with one another and really forming a really spiritual, God-given love for one another so that we can hold each other up in the tough times, so that we can stick together like the starlings do, so that we're not a group of isolated individuals, but that we're a family that sticks together and fights one another through the love that God's given us together. And, you know, through doing that, you know, through working together, through dreaming together, through sticking together, um, Nehemiah's remnant and rubble became the most incredible thing. You know, people couldn't believe it. In 52 days, this little group of people had come together with such strength um, and worked with God's strength to rebuild the wall in 52 days. It was, it was unheard of, and people just couldn't believe it. You know, they achieved an amazing thing and incredibly short space of time. And I believe that's God's heart for us in this church as well, is to reach out and see a city healed, do it through families, do it through the strength of God, doing it through all of those things um, in, our, in our discipleship groups together, to work together, to dream together, to stick together. And if, if you feel like that's something you want to respond to this morning, why don't you stand and just as we finish off, if you want to invest in your church family, if you want to invest in your biological family, you know, let's uh, respond this morning to the Lord by just posturing our hearts, by standing if you want to, by just showing the Lord some way with your body language that, yeah, this is something that's for me. I want to be part of a church family. I want to be part of a spiritual family. I want to be part of God's family. And I want to reach out. I want to build other people into this. I want to give them the opportunity. I want to share a dream with my church family. I want to work with them. And I want to see our city heal for the glory of the Lord. I suppose it starts with salvation, doesn't it? Because that's where, you, that's where your journey into the family of God begins. Um, it's giving your life to God. So I kind of want to start our response by giving anyone that opportunity this morning that hasn't yet had that chance. In fact, if you've, if you've decided to join God's family, if you've given your life to God, if you've committed your life to following Jesus, would you put your hand up now? If you've prayed that prayer, if you've prayed a salvation prayer and you've put your life in God's hands, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of starlings right there that have already given their lives to God. You know, you're not alone this morning if this is a decision that you want to make. This is the group, the people, the family that you'll be joining this morning if you put your life in the hands of God. So I'm going to put a salvation prayer up on the screen, an opportunity to give your life to the Lord, to choose to join the family of God. And we're all going to say it together because we're, we're family, yeah? We are family. We can do things together. And if you said that for the first time this morning, can our consolidation team give us a wave? Who's, on, who's consolidating us this morning? Steve and Caroline um, are going to take you guys out the back for a cup of coffee. We've got a free gift to give you. They just want to pray with you and encourage you and, and help you feel like part of the family of God here this morning. So let's just pray this together if you can read along with me. Everyone together. Father God, I know that you've invited me into your family. Thank you that through the sacrifice of your own son, Jesus, my sins can be forgiven and I can become a child of God. I accept your offer to be my heavenly father in this life and forever. Amen. 
Man, I never get tired of praying that. I think that must be like the hundredth time I've said that and it always does me good. But if you said that for the first time this morning, please head out the back there, head towards Caroline, um, head towards Steve. They're going to kind of pray salvation prayer with you again and just make sure you understand what you've done and the opportunity that God has for you this morning. And for the rest of us, you know, don't want us to miss out on the opportunity to respond to God this morning. So I've got a bit of a declaration on the screen. Have a little read of it. I'm not going to make you say it blind because I only want you to say it if you really, really want to. But if you want to commit this morning to growing kingdom family, to investing in your discipleship groups and to working together, to dreaming together and to sticking together, then this is a declaration that I think you can say this morning with a full and a whole heart. Should we say it together, those that want to? I am called by God to create a kingdom family with the people that God has put around me. Amen. And I guess my, the last thing that I want to encourage you this morning is get to your city groups this week. You know, what an advert for city groups. And let's all take a responsibility to make those God's family on earth for us at this time. And let's really invest in those groups. Um, and I think that's kind of me done for this morning. Steve's going to close the meeting off. But if anybody wants to pray with me after the meeting about anything, I'm here. I'll be at the front. I'm so happy to kind of stick around and pray with anybody.